Welcome back to your favorite podcast at the intersection of faith and fear, where we discuss what scares us in order to find what saves us. This is a very special fear of God for all of your fear of God needs from merch to episode archives. Be sure to visit us on the web at the fear of God Speaking to you right now is one of your hosts, Nathan Rouse, and though typically with me is fellow co-host Reed Lackey, I'll rope him into one of these at some point. Today, instead, I am joined once more by friend of the fog, author, rabble rouser, and leading Christian ethicist, Dr. David Gushy. Dr. Gushy, thank you so much for joining me this morning. I like being introduced uh, as a rabble rouser. That's nice, Nathan. Uh, it, now, it is great to be back with you in the fog. Yes, absolutely. You know, I want one day. And so maybe if you ever have a formal scenario where you want to talk about horror movies and need to invite me on, please introduce me as a rabble rouser. Cause I don't know. I just, that would, that would really, you know, kind of boost my spirits, uh, <laughs> especially too, cause my last name is Rouse. So it's like Nathan Rouse, the rabble rouser it would really work that way. Um, for listeners just tuning in. Yes, you are still at the podcast, typically known for dissecting horror films, but moreover, we are a show that purports at least to examine what scares us in order to find what saves us. And we can watch movies all day long, but at the end of the day, conscious living and compassionate consideration of our brothers and sisters demands we actually look at the world around us. Dr. Gushy's writings have provided, at least for myself, a lot of ways to better see clearly what might save us in the issues that most scare us today. And for that, Good work. I'm grateful. Uh, I will add the previous two discussions uh, from when Dr. Gushy was on previously uh, in the show notes. You'll definitely want to check those out. As in them, we accomplish the feat of certifiably settling such thorny issues as abortion, LGBTQ inclusion in the church, patriarchy's toxic expressions in congregations throughout the land, and of course, the church's questionable past and present on the issue of racial bias. Settled. Done. I'm glad we were able to partner in that good work. Dr. Geshe, that we can now move on to other things. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I'm glad to have that resolved. So thank you. For yeah. That. Yeah. Yes. No more unsettledness of spirit. No more concern as you look at headlines. Um, I am uh, excited to jump into things. We're going to take some questions. This is a little off previous format, but we're going to take some, some questions submitted by some of our Fog family in a few minutes. But first, you have a new book coming out. And um that is going to be our primary nexus for our conversation today. Uh, it's releasing October 3rd, if Amazon is correct. And that is a mere six days before my birthday. So thank you for that intentional timing, I'm sure. Um, enough prattling. Dr. Gushy, share with us about the book, um, You know what propelled you into this work and what readers might find in it. Uh, well, first of all, thank you, Nathan, for being interested in the book. And um I'm happy to talk about it. We're about uh, a month away from release as we are recording. The book is called Defending Democracy from Its Christian Enemies. 
Uh, it was based on my inaugural address when address when I got um, installed as a professor at the Free University of Amsterdam in 2022. And uh, when you when you get a professorship, they usually want you to give some kind of speech to say what you're working on. And, and I was working on this issue um, in the aftermath of the Trump presidency, in the aftermath of January 6, 2021, democracy the basic functioning of constitutional government and the rule of law and the peaceful transfer of power seemed shakier in our country than I had ever seen it. And I would say shakier than it had ever been since the Civil War. And as an ethicist, part of Christian social ethics, part of what we deal with is public and political ethics, at least I do. And so I felt I needed to interrogate Kind of what's going on especially because it was pretty clear that really quite clear that some committed christians had joined the insurrectionists on january 6th and we well know that a number of committed christians have followed trump into some pretty scary waters related to authoritarianism and and um not being terribly committed to the democratic process and so the book was an exploration of why democracy and Christianity seem to be seem to be at odds in some circles. And then uh, I really I'm really excited about what resulted. I'll tell you about it. You can ask me specific questions. But I ended up comparing uh, uh, seven different countries in which Christians had destabilized democracy or had been frankly opposed to democracy for very similar reasons. And so I think there's a pattern here. And um, and I, I try to identify that pattern and then also to describe the, the best resources in Christian ethics and theology for supporting democracy from within the terms of the Christian faith. Mm. There's, <laughs> you know, you have uh, swam in these waters for years and years and you know for the 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 neophytes to pondering these tectonic issues there's there's this way in which you kind of wish i kind of wish i could go back to this like naivete of for me you know uh half a dozen ten years ago and 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 just be like no everything's everything's great you know people are generally after the common good and you know look out for their brothers and sisters and, <laughs> and then you're just like oh god oh god you know the house is on fire is what it kind of feels like on an almost daily basis can you uh I, I didn't prep you for this but it should be pretty easy for you from a just peek behind the curtain standpoint you know i know in your vocation you are likely just kind of always pondering these things like track a little bit what goes from i'm just thinking about this stuff i want to sort of maybe put some things on paper to does does the speech moment the professorship you mentioned does that propel you towards okay this this has legs as a a fuller work or hey i'm already working on this let's let's test some of it out here like can you speak a little bit of what the progress is from sort of germ of idea to published work in this instance um but I try to put that back together. Let me see. It's the, the the inspiration process for me often has a mysterious quality to it, and I I can't 
I can't even always reconstruct it. Uh, it's like a book is just born. And, um, but I mean, there is a backstory. I think the way it went was um, after January 6, 2021, I was shocked. Um, having, having studied American politics closely since, since I was young, really, I grew up in the Northern Virginia area. My dad worked for the federal government. What happened in D.C. mattered it to us every day. And so it was mother's milk for me, right? Um, sure. And I would say I was in shock for a little bit after January 6th and after the Trump presidency. And I, you know, I was just thinking about it. I wasn't writing that much about it because I, I was almost not sure what to make of it yet. But then as I knew I was going to be inaugurated at the Free University of Amsterdam, and my thoughts began to come together that, especially because it, it was a European university, and so the idea of comparing different countries in Europe um, it was natural. I wanted to show uh, my range that I, I was not just an American who spoke about American things, but that I could talk about European things too. So that was part of it. Um, I also was wanting to see what the feedback was on the talk before developing it into a full-length book. Sure. So, um, yeah, so that address was in 2022. And um, and then at that point, it was all systems go. And the book ended up being done um, around Labor Day of last year. And, yeah, when I get onto a book, it usually is pretty much all-consuming until it's done. Yeah. Awesome. Um, no, I appreciate that. I, I, I'm going to flip flop here a second of what I sent you, but I want to lead with the the publishing timetable type scenario because it feels like a natural outgrowth of what we're saying here. So, you know, uh, the nature of book publishing uh, and and manuscript deadlines means a, a horizon line is going to come in just how timely uh, you can get uh, when you're discuss discussing pretty current events um and and knowing there's a gap between you know you, you turn in that final draft and and that's going to be the locked version uh and a book's release in this case uh still a month out as you've sort of observed the landscape in hindsight are there moments where you're like ah oh, can't wait for the second edition or mm -hmm. you know what what um now in in defense of the argument you make it itself is relatively airtight in other words here's uh examples of revolution counter-revolution across uh recent relatively recent history uh and how that sort of dovetails into what we've seen so 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 that particular argument is pretty um you know complete uh but because you are discussing very recent history uh for those of us who are living through it are there things you kind of wish now could go back in it? Uh, are you anticipating uh, a follow-up edition that can have more uh, appendices to it? Speak a little bit to that. Um, I The last chance I had to edit anything in this book um, was December 1st of 2022. And so, yes, I was really concerned. Which feels like forever ago. Uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> I was really concerned that by... Um, by October 3rd of 2023, there would be a lot that I was saying, oh, no, I wish I could change it. Um, sure. But it has, I think it holds up really, really well, actually. All the leaders and political parties, uh, everything I say about them, I think is still accurate. Yeah. Um, 
Putin is still in power in Russia and still at war in Ukraine and the Viktor Orban in Hungary and the Law and Justice Party in Poland. Now, Bolsonaro was voted out of office in Brazil, and I wasn't able to cover their own little January 6th that happened in Brazil. Uh, yeah. That was after the, the book closed, but it only reinforced the thesis. So I think it holds up exceedingly well. And the idea that that Trump, after 2022, might be finished, um, that would have made the book pretty obsolete, but that's not true either. So, so yeah, it holds up really, really well. I think it feels like it's up to the minute. Yeah. I just saw some headline this morning about, uh, you know, Georgia folk, your, your neck of the woods trying to undermine, you know, the, the, uh, I think her name's Fonny, but the, the Willis. The DA in uh, Fulton County. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. So good times, good times. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so I love a good title. I'm a fan of a pithy turn of phrase, a provocative play on words, um, defending democracy from its Christian enemies. You, sir, have chosen quite the provocative title for this book. And as anyone in extended conversation with me knows, I will turn on a dime from uh, moronic uh, uh, chatter to attempting sincerity and earnestness and profundity. And, and, and I'm feeling that in the moment, like as much as I love, you know, plays on words and whatever. I also, um, I, uh, I'll frame it this way. I've worked hard on myself and in how I speak of the world around me. And especially in how I sort of encourage other believers that even the word enemy itself is probably a thing that should be applied in rarest of instances, if ever, um, you know, that who we would often call enemy god calls friend and 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 the work required to bridge that gap for ourselves is is the work of faith in many ways and so you know while the provocateur in me loves the title of your book and loves the come out swinging sort of vibe of that um i'm curious if you can speak a little bit to um, I'll, I'll frame it the way I wrote it. Playing devil's advocate, does the incendiary title play into a sort of I told you so mentality of of perhaps your detractors? I'm speaking in the uh, metaphorical a bit, but I don't know if I'm making sense, but just yeah, the nature sure. of, you know, a, a combative sort of spirit. Um, I'm going to tag on to here and then just let you run. So I listened to... Um, uh, uh, talk about peaks behind the curtain here i enjoy hearing you uh in other contexts uh as it gets closer to us talking again i sort of mute them because a i don't want to know if i'm accidentally repeating a question you've gotten uh, otherwise or just want it to be more natural and organic for us but i did listen a few months back um i think it was i think it was maybe it was uh in germany uh a few months back anyway it was it was a setting where uh, the notion of peacemaking versus peacekeeping came up and, and something you shared there that really stuck with me was how this, this perhaps, um, misapplied notion that the goal is simply no conflict. Right. right. And, and I'm, I'm wanting you to speak a little bit about that, tying it into just sort of the, the intentionality behind, you know, in this case, the title of the book, if all of that makes sense. Um, the book title is provocative. Um, 
but it is it, it it really intends to be descriptive in this sense in the book i describe specific peoples people leaders political parties and movements including scholars of some distinction um in the us and around the world who are raising questions about democracy that are deeply challenging to to democracy itself they're not my enemies as in i want to fight with them in the street they're they are potentially or quite really enemies to democracy as i carefully define it in the book you know constitutional government with the rule of law and the protection of civil rights and the equality of of all people in the society um they um they are more authoritarian in their understanding of power um they're willing to set aside democracy if they believe higher values are at stake or if they just want to retain power and um you know part of what i do in the book is i tell a, a historical narrative about you know democracy is a relatively late arrival on the scene in terms of the being the predominant political system in the world it really it begins in the 17th and 18th centuries that's a lot of history before that right and christianity had hundreds and hundreds of years in which it was supportive and underwriting monarchies and other kinds of ways of of doing society so so there's actually it's a relatively recent development like let's say a person was 80 years old um you might say that the for the first 60 years of their life they lived this way and the last 20 years of their life they lived a different way in terms of the history of christian ideas you might say for the first 60 years of our life we were monarchical and and christendom centralization of power in a christian state and only relatively recently have we been supporting democracy and i tell the story of why why christians used to be non-democratic why a lot of christians evolved to support democracy but why some christians both political leaders and scholars are thinking that maybe democracy isn't such a great idea after all maybe we need to do something different and because i think christians should support democracy for reasons that i outline in the book uh, such people's ideas need to be interrogated so it's not just like crazy people on January 6th wearing furs and funny hats. It's scholars in their studies writing books saying, not so sure about democracy because not so sure that it's what Christians should support as, as the way of doing government. Because it may not it may not be the best result or it may not even be how God wants power organized. So I think for that reason, um, it's fair to say that these are people who are taking dead aim at democracy itself and their ideas need to be engaged it's a it's a incendiary title but never could find a better one like defending democracy from its christian critics uh my, i mean somebody like victor orban in hungary is not just a critic of democracy he is undoing democracy in hungary i think a critic is not a strong enough word um sure. so so in the end i think it was the right word it'll certainly get people's attention it may be maybe uh get the book in some bonfires some somewhere you know just burn it up or or uh, other well, people and, might pick it up and read it you know you know in florida i'm sure they won't have it in any schools that's for sure um <laughs> maybe north carolina soon enough um well and 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 to be fair i i actually you know 
I love it from an emotional standpoint. Uh, and just that, you know, again, that, you know, my wife tells me sometimes she's like, why do you feel the need to kick a hornet's nest all the time? I'm like, I don't. <laughs> well, the hornet's nest is there and it needs to be kicked, you know? <laughs> I've had such conversations. Yes, I know what you're talking sure. about. Yes. Well, can you okay, dovetail that a little bit? Because I do want listeners to hear, because um, I, I clearly I can't even exactly recall where it was I heard you discuss this. Can you talk a little bit about the what you see as you know, even separate from this unique book, but uh, as we go about our lives, trying to be thoughtful, mindful, uh, followers of, of Jesus, who also recognize dynamics that exist in the world, this, this notion of peacekeeping versus peacemaking, this idea that, um, sometimes ideally rhetorical, not necessarily physical violence is violence is too strong word. Conflict is what I'll use is appropriate um to to sort of finish the sentence for me dr gushin <laughs> i think you understand yeah. what i'm after um the world is broken people see the world differently and people act in the world differently sometimes christians come into situations where their vision of right and wrong is so fundamentally opposed to somebody else's maybe a fellow christians that it is impossible to pretend that that's not happening um and i think there comes a time for plain speaking Hmm. and engaging you might say on the on the field of rhetorical conflict about ideas making arguments responding to arguments, making counter arguments, putting ideas forward. Of course, in a democracy, we do that with ideas and words, not with not with guns and knives. That's part of part of why January 6th was so scary, because um, violence was used to contest a nonviolent democratic process. Yeah. Um, So. So, okay, if we're going to really have an argument about democracy, let's have it. Let's put the arguments on the table and. and let people make their best arguments. And so, uh, sadly, sometimes on the other end of an argument, even among Christians, we discover that there is not going to be agreement. There's, in fact, the, the disagreement may be so stark, it may be very, very difficult to remain friends or to remain in community with each other. But in a nation where people aren't generally leaving and going to other nations, we have to continue to have the argument. Yeah. Even if we even if we disagree and even if it's very, very painful. When I discovered that there were some really smart scholars and pastors and other people making explicit anti-democratic arguments, I thought it was and I still think it was perfectly appropriate to engage those arguments. And um, I do think that peace can come on the other side of a, a uh, conflicted conversation, though, how one you're right, you're suggesting or or wondering whether if you ratchet up the the vocabulary too much then you may not even be able to have a conversation because people feel so offended before you even get in the room right or they won't even talk to you um so try not to do that and in the book the book is i think pretty reasoned there's not a lot of inflammatory language in the book the title is probably the most inflammatory thing about the book um it's it's a it's a reasoned engagement with with an idea and the idea is something like this 
the liberalization of culture in formerly Christian lands has proceeded so, this is the conservative side, has proceeded so radically that core values of Christians and of nations are threatened. Democracy is not working to protect those values. So we may not be able to confine our counter-revolution against the liberals to the democratic process. We might need to do some other things to combat liberal drift or or worse in our societies. That I think is, I mean, now that I think is a very fair statement of what a lot of people are wondering on the right wing in a number of countries. Sure. They feel that, you know, wokeness and political correctness was the earlier term. And, you know, the liberalization of attitudes about sexuality and gender, um, the pluralization of religion, the, the dramatic cultural and ethnic diversity, they feel that traditional Christian values and traditional Christian people are being swamped by something different. And I would say, I say in the book, that in America, the Christian right movement around people like Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson and stuff in the 70s and 80s, that was the an, a major visible effort to turn the tide using the democratic process. Mm, yeah. but I, and that was 50 years ago. Right. What I think some on the more radical end now are saying is something like the democratic process is, is essentially rigged um, either because the elections are rigged, that would be what Trump was saying, or just because the liberals are in control of the media and the universities and the administrative apparatus of the country, the courts, and so on. And so they're not playing fair. We may not be able to play fair either. Um, and so much is at stake. And then if you have the people, you may know some people like this, who feel that liberalism is akin to like demonic powers and, you know, they're evil and they're the QAnon, you know, they're they're uh, trafficking children. And, and, you know, in other words, if you ratchet up the fear, here's your fear of God, right? The things that scare us. Let's, let's pitch it that way. On the, on the really traditionalist right in the U.S., they're terrified of cultural trends that they think are threatening to the core their own children and grandchildren. And, and so they're pushing back hard, sometimes by using state power within the boundaries of what a governor or a school board or, or a president is allowed to do, but sometimes by saying, you know, the heck with that, uh, we're going to manipulate the system so that we can get the outcome that we need because so much is at stake. And by the way, that same language has been used in, in Poland and in Hungary and in Brazil and in Russia. Um, we need strong Christian leaders who will turn back liberalism and, you know, the gay movement and the woke people and critical race theory. And uh, we don't care if a few eggs are broken along the way because so much is at stake. Um, you don't have to agree with me or, uh, you know, um, acknowledge if you don't want to. But, you know, the, there are a few things uh, I, I find few things more diminishing of what's possible in engagement than uh, a a person seriously using the word woke. It is so silly and asinine to me, uh, but that's that's a Nathanism. Um, that well, it I helps to listen, live. though. You know, I used to feel that way. Like, 
Oh, please. It's a way of shutting down conversation. Right. As that um, feels. Yes. Yeah. But I, in the process of writing this book, I tried to enter sympathetically into the mind of somebody who would use that phrase on a regular basis to describe something real to them. Hmm. When I said you didn't have to agree with me, I didn't know you disagree with me, but I'm a, that's why you're here and I'm appreciative of it. So, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I think, I mean, it, you know, people used to say political correctness. I remember when Trump was running for president the first time, he, he's ever, pretty regularly would say, we're, we got to combat the forces of political correctness, right? And then it's now it's more like woke or wokeism. Um, and by the way, that language has traveled. It's in other countries too. In France, they talk about wokeisme. It's the same. It's the same thing. Wow. Wow. Yep. Um, and and so the idea is painfully correct liberal attitudes that people don't want to have imposed upon them, and so they're pushing back hard. That, that's really the basis of Ron DeSantis's whole presidential campaign. Right. Right. And it's how he's running the government in Florida. It really we have to understand for whatever reason, there's a significant chunk of our neighbors whose entire worldview is about anger and sometimes panic, certainly resistance to what they consider to be the oppressive liberal forces in the high reaches of culture. And they're pushing back. Um, and yes. This, yeah. This helps to explain, uh, and I've read enough. I'm reading the, like these magazine articles in like pretty serious magazines, in which you know people are like, "Okay, so we need to use a democratic process." But I quote one person, and it was in National Review, a conservative magazine. More radical means may be required if the democratic process simply doesn't work. Yes. Oh brother um and in uh, i guess ever so mild defense of myself is a good segue into where we're going next um uh my issue and what i described in my response to the use of the word woke had less to do with um hey you're a dummy and more with i feel like this is being used as a cudgel to not actually like talk right like oh well x thing in the world that's just wokeism and i was like well wh what do you mean like let's I i'm happy to like talk and, and figure out like are there sympathetic sort of, um, you know, things we can stand on here? It just often feels used as a dismissive uh, than it is as an engagement, which I think. Absolutely. Is yeah, absolutely. Slogans do that, right? You know? Slogans yes. Um, yep. I want to jump into this because in the, you you brought up a, a, a salient point that I want to hang out at, and that's the uh, sympathy for our brothers and sisters who see quite differently and sometimes starkly and and I'm, i want to um one of our listener questions will go into the, go into a version of this a bit uh shortly but in the book you discuss and and you even previously on the show referenced this phrasing of authoritarian reactionary christianity i, I want you to feel free to at least name check uh by definition what you mean there but my main sort of inquiry here and this this is where if I have any real sympathy and 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 arguably empathy for what I might say are misguided people of faith in their modern pursuit politically, it's from those from those who kind of cut their teeth on the pews, as the phrase might go, uh, from those earliest days in places of worship on every 
flannel graph in Sunday school, every banner in a sanctuary, every prayer from every pulpit, you know this, you individually know this, the language of king, the language of kingdom, authority, uh, uh, may your kingdom come on earth. This is everywhere. It is critical, crucial, and ubiquitous uh, in the recipe of kind of uh, evangelical, for sure, uh, Christian faith. And while I personally can hold the tension uh, between you know, a, a, a kingship, uh, uh, guided by a suffering servant who teaches us through sublimation of self, that that is the key to entering that kingdom. I can hold the tension between that and would be, you know, monarchy monarchs themselves who prop up, uh, authoritarian structures to amass power, achieve followers, uh, dupe followers, um, you know, execute violence, uh, uh, if necessary to achieve a certain end. I can hold the tension between those two things. But the problem seems that we've taken the name of a thing, we ignore the form and substance and apply it everywhere else. Because what, what at its roots, because I even listening to you in this conversation, um, I don't love this sometimes about myself. I'm, I'm hearing the opposite side, like, well, but Dr. Gushy, democracy is broken and flawed. You know, and uh, to execute a, a more uh, um, uh, Christian, kingly, authoritarian—see, uh, I'm, I'm struggling to not fall into the authoritarian word—but to to implement that in the world requires certain things. So, I guess, can you speak a little bit, or a lot, if you want? How do we observe, receive, comprehend this language that is that is baked into the tradition, that is arguably baked into the truth, right? Um, how do we reconcile that and, and somehow not think that that is the model to pursue, um, especially because that model is at odds with a model of democracy, as you would define it. Can you speak some to that? I'm really glad you asked that question. Um, because it goes, I mean, the way you said it, it's baked in what's baked in God is King. God is sovereign. I mean, there could, okay, so ha- there could hardly be a more fundamental affirmation of the faith. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray that every week in a lot of churches. God is king, and our our yearning is that God's kingship would be manifested on earth. We also say in Christian circles, Christ is Lord. Christ is Lord of all. Christ is Lord of our lives. So you might say this starting default setting for Christian thinking about power has been God is king and we're the ones who know that the God we meet in scripture is king and we should want God's will to be done on earth because God is the rightful king Um, or Jesus the son of God is the Lord of all and one day every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord Philippians 2, we should be wanting to live in such a way that the Lordship of Christ is acknowledged. You can easily see how those baked-in core ideas could lead to something like what we need is a state structure that acknowledges that God is King and Christ is Lord. So we need that written into the Constitution, right? uh, You could also easily see um the law should reflect um the will of god as we as we understand it like in the bible 
Um, and we would want the rulers to be Christians. So how is it that we got from that to supporting a democracy where the where the rule is by the people and their representatives? Right. And the people vote, and sometimes their votes or the representatives vote, and sometimes their votes are not wise. And we even if we had the numbers, we refrain from writing Jesus into the Constitution. Um, and we acknowledge and honor the separation of church and state. How do we get there? We got there through a long historical journey of trial and error. We got there by, by seeing the corruption when the church and the state are married to each other, the corruption of the state and the corruption of the church. Um, we got there by seeing all the all the burned and hung and murdered bodies in inquisitions and heresy hunting and the wars of religion. Um, we got there when we realized that if you try to um, to establish a religion, everybody who doesn't believe in the established religion is, is having their rights violated and they're either having to violate their conscience or they're going to have to be in rebellion against the state. And so you have constant religious conflict in, in countries. Um, in other words, it was through the long process of of the medieval world and the late medieval world. Reformation had a lot to do with it because once Protestantism split from Catholicism and they could not agree on anything um, and were killing each other for a hundred years, you know, people noticed and realized we got to do something different than this. So it's a story of the the British learning how to soften their monarchy develop a parliamentary democracy and have some religious liberty. And and then you had the Americans from the beginning in 1789 having the First Amendment to separate church and state and having no religious test for public office. The French are interesting because they had a really anti-church secular revolution that kind of went, that did go too far, and they were trying to figure out how to put that back together for 130 years, 140 years, what to do there. And, and their model is a little bit different. But you can see how, Nathan, how few pastors would have the knowledge to be able to tell that story about how we ended up supporting democracy and why democracy with separation of church and state and religious liberty is a good idea. I think if there were a vote in the southern states today, I'm not sure that the First Amendment would pass. Mm. So we we've lost contact with the reasons why we gradually evolved most Christians to support the kind of democracy that was developed in the US. It was learning the hard way what happens when the state and the church are married in a Christian formulation, right? And you have a, a officially Christian state. It's as, uh, as Southern Baptists used to say, I remember hearing um, Richard Land who headed the ethics and religious liberty of the SBC, he used to say, separation of church and state is good for both, both the church and the state. I wonder if how many Southern Baptists would say that today. So, so we learned some things over time. In the book, I talk about three traditions of Christian thought that ought to be retrieved to remind us of why we support democracy. And I call those Baptist democratic congregationalism and the covenantal tradition that comes out of the reformed and baptist and anabaptist side 
and then the African-American kind of dissenting tradition in the U.S. All of these deeply democratic and pro-democratic traditions, or at least they can be, um, the covenantal tradition can go either way. I make a case for it being uh, for, for democracy. But, um, but yeah, so I think partly it's the appalling historical ignorance of a lot of folks that they don't know or are or, or not taught any of that history. Um, but it's also frustration that the democracy is producing outcomes that people consider to be abhorrent, which makes them wonder whether they really want to live in a democracy. Mm. Yes. Um, you know, I, I had this, I, I, uh, I am not a historian by any, any measure of the word. Uh, I, I am just a person who through experience and what my academic life was is uh and and arguably religious life was is is just a person open to possibility and consideration and and you know uh, attempt to be slow to choose if that makes sense slow to determine decide uh be certain uh slow to certainty i think is a, a decent way to put it and and a thing i think about often and 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 even sort of grieve is what feels like this uh symbol without substance that has become maybe maybe he was before i paid attention to it but i had a pretty transformative experience last summer um i went with my now 15 year old on a trip through europe with her school a school tour and i'd never never done that sort of thing before uh mildly uh, ashamedly had not left the u.s before that and and sort of chose that as my like okay here's here's a way i can kind of chaperone hang out with my kid and also you know see some traditional sites and uh we had this um uh two instances but the one i'll speak of at least um dang i can't remember his name but this this you know almost uh picture dick van dyke and mary poppins but with a better accent uh because it was natural and organic and real uh <laughs> older older gentleman uh tall gentleman uh cockney sort of energy to him as our tour guide born and raised in uh london and it was the one of just these wildly transformative moments for me of just like this is awesome this is you know what what can feel so sort of uh pedantic and uh, i'll hate i hate this word but you'll understand the sensitivity of the boring uh engaging uh in in you know the study of history occasionally uh suddenly was brought to life for me in a very very tactile and tangible way and and i use that example as as just what it feels like sometimes watching people of faith in 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 large swaths kind of just like well you're you uh in this analogy you are like me pre that trip like it was all just kind of an ephemeral thing uh and uh, and the the hard part about uh, faith and especially I would say maybe evangelicalism because it's what I'm familiar with is we keep it ephemeral we keep it up here and out there we don't root it and we don't maintain a consciousness towards how all of this is tethered to itself and each other and us and this is not from the book but something that uh really moved me recently from your uh one of your posts uh from August 10th it was and I'm just going to quote you briefly here but it just says a lot of people who really wanted the religious identity are leaving and mm. I, I think that might be one of the saddest statements uh because because as someone who still holds a tether 
however loosely, I get it deeply. Like people who see the, the, or at least perceive, uh, uh, what they understand, however, scantly the person of Jesus and say that I, I could get down with that. Um, and, and not in a like pop culture way that I used right. you know, kind of mm-hmm. modern language for that, but I think you understand what I'm saying, but who are just forced out, uh, and, and, and mm-hmm. told to leave. Um, and that, that, that really is a, a pretty heartbreaking sort of thing to ponder. Nathan, um, think, think, can I just jump in here to say, please imagine the reshaping of the understanding of Christianity that is gradually going on that I'm kind of describing in this way, this authoritarian reactionary Christianity way, right? So, so you've got pastors and some professors and church leaders and writers and so on. And they're gradually saying, you know what Christianity really is? Christianity is the fight against wokeism. Christianity is the fight against trans rights because that's just a liberal wokest agenda, right? Christianity is fighting back against the child traffickers and the and the demons who are taking our country over the cliff on the left. Um, Christianity is restore is making America great again and Christian again and conservative and traditional again. And if you're not with that agenda, you're not a Christian. And think about the people the many, many, many millions of people raised in the church even or converted into it who say, well, actually, I don't think that is Christianity or I don't want any part of that agenda. That's not my agenda. I, I don't think it was Jesus's agenda. And so peace out. I'm gone. So this gradual reshaping of the kind of public meaning of what Christianity is as a kind of a counter revolution against liberal forces is one of the factors driving people into the post-evangelical and post-Christian space that we've talked about before. Yeah. And by the way, that's how this book kind of connects to some of my earlier work too, right? It's it's documentable that one of the things driving people into post-evangelicalism is like really uh, not happy with the right-wing kind of authoritarian turn and the Trumpist turn on the evangelical politics, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um. And so, in a sense, this book, this new book, addresses that in some detail. But, I mean, the stories abound of people who, like young people, I meet them all the time, their parents were just around the bend with this right-wing authoritarian pro-Trump, January 6th was a good idea, and they they don't even know what's happened to their parents, and and, or, or their pastor is spouting that stuff on Sunday morning. Or anybody who votes Democrat is voting for the for the demonic or whatever. And and then of course you got all the targeting of LGBTQ people as in the name of Christianity too. And and so there as I'm glad you found that quote. There are a lot of people who are deeply formed by the faith, who love Jesus, but with when this is what Christianity is identified with, the agenda of authoritarian, reactionary, anti-left stuff as the whole bread and butter, they they don't want any part of that. They're gone. Yeah. Um, yes. And it is, it is disheartening for sure. Um, so, you know, enough of my, uh, um, hard on sleeve stuff. I'll let some others, uh, share <laughs> what's some from their heart. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I did. Here we go. Yes. Yes. Uh, you, sir, with your hand up. Uh, no, not that <laughs> one. Um, um, so I did have a couple of, of responses to my, you know, inquiry for some questions. And I think these are real 
powerful here and i want you to be as you know kind of robust in your response as you would like but um a, a gentleman who frequents our our actually on show time uh and in behind the scenes a gentleman named stephen beckley asks um i'm wondering what dr gushy thinks about codes of ethics for organizations government departments private companies uh, how essential are or should they be for keeping public and consumer trust? Um, I'm compelled to ask because of recent Supreme Court controversies, but also know firsthand about how local churches have had controversies in staff or pastorships. And as a reaction after that has departed, a new code of ethics and procedures like background checks put in place. So, you know, um, feel free to address that as as much or as little as you'd like. What what are your thoughts for Stephen there? Um, I think that... Uh having a code of ethics is a good idea. Um, I have sometimes done an exercise with my students here at Mercer where I ask them to draft a code of ethics for themselves as ministers. Um, I know some who worked so hard at it that whenever they interview for a job, they take that code of ethics with them. And they say, this is, this is the code that, that I try to live by that governs my conduct. In general, ministry in the Protestant world that I know better, uh, especially the evangelical, non-denominational, low church world, is is an ethical wild west with very little clarity of standards and norms. And that's one reason why a lot of crud happens because nobody is no. I mean, they're just making stuff up, and and they've not adequately thought about what their rules should be. Now, a, a code of ethics in the for a corporation or or the Supreme Court or Congress or whatever is only the beginning of professional ethics. You also have to have, you have to really believe in it. You have to be committed to it. There has to be accountability and enforcement. Uh, there's a, I forget who said it, uh, might've been as far back as Aristotle. Um, no rules can adequately govern the behavior of somebody whose character is lawless. Mm. So you can put um, 10,000 rules and codes and regulations on people, but if, if they are morally bankrupt, they'll break whatever code you put in front of them. Yeah. But, but a code at least clarifies what the expectations are. And, and like if you sign a code to be employed somewhere or whatever, then you can be held accountable to it, right? So I think it's a good idea, and I, um, I think the Supreme Court needs an enforceable code of ethics. And so does pretty much every every institution that one could name, including churches. Absolutely. So this is kind of fun. You uh, you name checked old Mercer, and this next little battery of questions is from a Mercer alum, uh, uh, Father Josh, Father Josh Bowron, who is the rector of the church uh, we are um, aligned with here in Charlotte, Saint Martin's Episcopal, and actually. For listeners appeared on our conversation regarding the show Midnight Mass uh, just over a year ago, something like that. And I'm going to read you what he's written. I'm going to let you tackle him and piece him apart as you want and see fit, uh, because there's a couple of thoughts here. Dr. Gushy, do you see Christian nationalists as the problem with America uh, or are they pawns in a larger game? If the latter, can you identify other groups on the left that might be analogs? Uh, additionally, uh, what is the fundamental interpretive mistake that nationalists make and subsequent to that and Christian liberal progressives? The same question. 
Um, I'm letting you know because I he, this is a very smart individual and sometimes I just want clarity. I said, when I inquired for a little elaboration, he shared, it's about the interpretation, right? No one has the perfect right way of doing this. Everyone's making a mistake or more that steers them astray. So that was his clarifying for that. But feel free to tackle some of that as you will. Um, the use of the term Christian nationalism is uh, something that I look at in the book. I end up concluding that it doesn't, it doesn't describe as clearly at least what I want to call authoritarian reactionary Christianity. So uh, Christian nationalism was from an earlier uh, conversation from some scholars. Um, so, okay, so let's bracket that. I do think that that the threat to democracy right now is more located on the right than on the left. Um, and so I don't think it's exactly like kind of, uh, I don't want to do any kind of equivalency there. Right. Sure. Um, I do think that this is true, a growing intolerance and even a growing incomprehension of the other side of our binaries is visible on the left and on the right. And the sense that ultimate matters are at stake every time we have an election and the ratcheting up of the rhetoric of the evil of the other side is creating the conditions where people will become sorely tempted to abandon the democratic process, maybe to turn to violence, maybe to, to, to so manipulate democracy so that it stops being democracy. The idea that, um, it's just absolutely inconceivable that the other side loves the country or loves God. So, so that's the, you know, the worry is a mutual incomprehension and a mutual intolerance that makes it impossible for us to live together. Right. So I do think it's always important to try to understand sympathetically, if not empathetically, how other people look at the world and how they got there and to try to build bridges and try to find ways of living together in community, even where the disagreements are profound, is important. So that's what I would say to that question. Yeah. You know what? This is my editorializing here, but what what can feel so hard sometimes, I think, you know, just as a person out in the world trying to, you know, keep their head on straight and their food on the table if, if we're getting that bare bones, but just, you know, just trying to sort of make it and figure out how do I live at peace with my brothers and sisters uh, kind of thing. Like uh, something, if you're not familiar with, um, I'll, I'll highlight for you here, but that as a parent of digital natives, uh, I have begun investigating more deeply and, and sort of educating myself on there's a, an organization called the center for humane technology. And uh, they produce a podcast. It's called your undivided attention. Uh, mm -hmm. And, uh, were at least in part responsible, if not fully, for the film a couple of years ago, uh, The Social Dilemma, which released on Netflix. And where I'm going with this is is the sad state that there are factors outside of individual humans that are that are actively ratcheting up, you know, the the conflict and the the animus and the resentment and 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 our inability to see them, right? Yeah. And and that's what gets troubling and and you know, something you said a moment ago made me think of this, of how empathy is always called for, but 
there are, uh, and there's no but on empathy always being called for, but what clouds that capacity are things we don't even understand are clouding it. And, and I think that is, I, I um, Father Josh, who submitted these questions, I, I, he and I, um, uh, we play D and D together. So that's fun. And I was telling him recently at a time when we were spending a few minutes together, I said, I don't envy the world you're having to minister in right now. I, I don't envy you having to minister in the world you're in right now, because this is only going to get harder. Uh, and, and that was, you know, out of a loving spirit, it wasn't like, OMG, you should have a different line of work. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but I, but I feel that way. I think this is only going to get harder trying to help people see, you know, uh, this feels reductive, trying to help people see the truth, trying to help people understand the belovedness of their neighbor is as intrinsic to them as the belovedness of them, of them themselves. Uh, because there are a lot of, uh, interceding forces, uh, between those two beloveds, if, if that's making any sense. That's a really good point. And it does, it does loop back around to his question, like pawns in a bigger game. Yeah. Um, the ratcheting up of animus, through the way algorithms work on social media and so on and putting stuff in front of you that inflames you and makes you hate the other side more is a factor and people make money off of that. Yes. So I don't want to succumb to conspiracy thinking, but I do want to say that I don't think it's a coincidence that the birth of the social media era has been directly correlated with the, with the deepening of mutual incomprehension and mutual hatred across left right lines in multiple countries i think i don't think that's a conspiracy theory at all i think you can hold pretty tightly to that um idea because i think there's a lot of truth there and in fact a lot of you know just again our oldest is 15 and and we still get occasional pushback on the things we will or won't let her engage with from a technology standpoint and i maybe even shared this with you before but just this idea that we had a real heart to heart i was like hey you 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 think mom and dad are just being strict. What I need you to hear is you think you're one person staring at one screen, but there's a whole lot of people staring back at you and and mm-hmm. who don't have your, uh, I just read this and the people I just cited Center for Humane Technology, um, they sent out a newsletter and, and one of their little points this week is tech is not neutral. Uh, there are uh, bents it has. Uh, as a will from a certain perspective. So yeah, anyway, and they don't have your best interests at heart. They don't have your best right. interests. Absolutely That's, not. You can say that to a 15 year old and it's true. They don't have your best interests. <laughs> yes. Yes. You can say it to them. Getting them to hear it is a whole other different thing. <laughs> <laughs> now we're talking. Now we're now we're really um, talking. So I really love this last question and and felt like for you as an educator, it was kind of up your alley and and sort of is what I was alluding to earlier about you know, uh, my earlier question pointing to something here. And this is uh, from Stephen Harrogrove, a uh, uh, dear friend and uh, occasionally referred to as Stephen Scaregrove on the Fear of God, just because it works with the theme. Uh, uh, one of the finest educators I personally know, and and I, my mother's an educator, we come from a long line of just, you know, respect for education as a profession and for that world. And, and, Stephen's a, a very smart individual and submitted this question, uh, and I'll, I'll read it as he wrote it. Um, Dr. Gushy, in a recent piece in The Atlantic, David Brooks argues that much of our declining democratic political culture and deepening of social cleavages can be tied to a decline of moral education. 
He believes that a new moral education could decrease the tribalism that has caused Americans to see right and wrong as less a means of virtue development and more a method of identity alignment against those we see as evil. Brooks concedes that the kind of moral education more prevalent a century ago did help perpetrate the sexism, racism, and homophobia of that era. And, Stephen says, I would add that in the modern context, Christian institutions of moral education, private schools, churches, etc., have readily become thralls of a morally bankrupt cult of personality. My question is, what would moral education that builds personal virtue, pluralist political culture, and liberal democracy look like in the 21st century? So have fun with that one. You've got some smart friends, Nathan. <laughs> um, like finds like. That's all I'll say. Like there finds you go. Like, like yeah. finds like. That's that's a really smart question because um, I'll take it to something else. I, I read the the great Renaissance figure Erasmus. I'm reading Erasmus right now. He's one of my heroes, 16th century. Um, he tried to steer a middle course during the Reformation and get people help people not kill each other, and he failed. But his legacy is great. He's a he's a favorite in Europe, Erasmus. Everybody should read some Erasmus. So I was reading his book called The Education of a Christian Prince. And um, he was, it was 120 pages all about the moral, the intentional moral development of future political leaders. And Erasmus says over and over again, the most important responsibility of any leader, like a king or queen, is the education of the next generation. Uh, beginning in the royal household, but the implication, of course, would be for any of us. So what this would, I mean, what this reminded me of is, you might say that you and your wife, your most important moral responsibility on any given day is the education, the moral formation of your children. And you only get one shot at that. You get their childhood, and then they're grown. Um, it used to be that people thought about life that way. That the most important responsibility of parents, of churches, of synagogues, even of community institutions, of, of networks of friends and so on, was the moral formation of the young. So, and that tradition has weakened considerably. So kids are not really being subjected to any kind of uh, any kind of intentional moral formation program except what the digital uh, hours are subjecting them to. And that's kind of scary, right? Yes. If you're getting morally formed on TikTok, that's not quite the same thing as getting morally formed in the way that Erasmus was talking, right? Sure. Um, and it's also true that um, that moral formation can be good or bad, but it all depends on the vision of the formers. I mean, the Nazis in Germany were perfectly clear in their goal to do some re moral reformation of the young in Germany. They wanted them to be good Nazis, and they worked really hard at it. So, so they were very intentional. They were intentional with an evil agenda. They wanted some stone cold killers on the male side, and and uh, a lot of women who would who would have a lot of good Nazi babies on the female side. That's what that was their agenda, right? So to the question basically is asking what would be a moral education program for the kind of people that I, I would like to produce here, you know, the kind of people who would be supportive of democracy and able to handle pluralism and all of that. 
I haven't I haven't developed uh, like what that agenda would be, but it, it does need to be developed. It partly it is an educational agenda of knowing this history. Hmm. Um, it it involves studying the history of racism and the history of patriarchy and the history of religious violence and the history of Christendom to say, here's why we've moved away from that. Here's why we want something different, right? Study of the long mistreatment of LGBTQ people, the death penalties and, and brutalities of every type all through the centuries and why, why a more inclusive society is a better one, why Christians should support it. But like, who's doing that? Because kind of the purely secular liberal version of that is not quite enough. And what's happening in the homeschool curriculum is usually anything but that. So, so, and the Christian school curriculum. So there's a major gap in terms of the formation of young people who have the kind of agenda and vision that I'm describing in this book, but it's a brilliant question. And whoever, whoever that person is who gave that question, let's talk about how to develop curriculum and how to, um, how to, how to intentionally form people in this vision. Because if, if, if somebody reads this book and says that's what we need, then they're gonna be educators and 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 folks who will say, we gotta, we gotta train up people in that. I actually in the book, as you remember, I talk a little bit about Christian school curriculum mm-hmm. and um and some of the crazy stuff that's communicated, including anti-democratic stuff. And so who's who's offering the alternative to our to our kids? Well, you'll appreciate the fact that Stephen is a history teacher, so he is very much in line with um, some of your interests and, and preoccupations. Um, yeah. Tell Stephen hello for me, and tell I'll him uh, that. He's, that question. The question demands a response more than an answer in a, in a podcast. You know. Mm. Yeah, there's so much more that could be said there. Um, as we kind of wind our way towards the end here, uh, sadly, on my end, at least, uh, I've just, uh, you know, kind of kind of a slightly heavier segue into something a bit lighter. So one, you'll you'll enjoy this little nugget. Um, I received the digital copy of uh, Defending Democracy from its Christian Enemies, uh, read it uh, completely, highlighted it, you know, sort of, uh, I don't know, 50 percent or more of it. And earlier this week, I was like, I need to refresh myself on these no- these highlights, and maybe I am just finally in old fart territory. I don't know, but I on my Kindle, I couldn't find it. I mean, I found the text, like the the full the full text, but I couldn't figure out how to export my highlights. I googled for like an hour. How <laughs> in the world? Why can't I find this? I've done it before. I think it has something to do with the fact that it was sort of a pre-copy kind of thing and it wasn't formally from them, but I could not find it. So all of these, you you know, maybe enhancing my smartness. Maybe I just gave away the game here. Like all of this is born just from memory at this point uh, of reading the book. But one thing I do remember about the book um, is that by perception, by observation, um, there are few of a few places where you personalize a bit of the challenge this book presented for you. You may think that's an overstated phrase. I can respect that, but kind of a forced detachment, maybe a, an imposed intellectualizing in this one. Um, I wonder if, if, if that's fair uh, and, and can you share a little bit of what made that made this particular one a little harder uh, than, than maybe something previously. I I did not want to sound hysterical in this book, 
I did not want to sound like I was in a fog of fear, so to speak. Right. Sure. Um, I, I wanted to, um, to put my thinking cap on and figure out what was going on analytically. Um, but there is much at stake for me personally. I really need and want to live in a democracy with freedom of speech and freedom of religion and a functioning electoral process. And if that should end in the United States after 240 years, I'm not sure that I could continue to live in this country. Um, nor would I want my children and grandchildren to live in this country. In other words, democracy is that important to me. Democracy is, con is constitutive of what I think a well, a well-run country looks like. Um, and to find many fellow Christians getting a little loose in their commitment to democracy because because they're so concerned about liberalizing, pluralizing changes needed, it just had to be responded to. So this is my effort to respond and to plead with my fellow Christians to to whatever advocacy, whatever their political views, whatever their moral views, to advocate them within the boundary lines of democracy. But I would say, I remember um, January 6th, at Mercer, classes started the next day, January 7th. And we were, it was 2021, we were back, the way our president had us doing it is we were back in mass teaching in person on the spring of 21. So the first day I was back with the students was the day after January 6th. And I was in shock. And I was also appalled that my young students, 18, 19, 20 years old, were having to witness something that should never have happened in, the, in this country. That the instability of the democracy that I used to be able to take for granted that this was now what they would have to deal with in a formative moment. So I'm deeply emotionally invested in this project, but I tried to write in such a way that it wasn't, I didn't want there to be a lot of I language in the book. I didn't want it to be about me. Sure. I wanted it to be about bigger, you know, God's, how God wants Christians to engage this world. And so I didn't want it to be over-personalized. I, I was aware that the trajectory of books I've been writing since the early part of the 2010s, there's a lot of eye language, you know, about the evangelicalism and post-evangelicalism and all of that. I, I didn't want to become too focused on me. And I thought this book was about, not about me, it was about our country and about the world. So yeah, very yeah. perceptive yeah. of you to pick that up. I, I really wanted a little bit of a different feel in this book. Well, well, almost the more uh, analytical analytical approach makes it a little scarier, actually, <laughs> because you get to Brazil and I'm like, oh my god, uh, <laughs> this is uh, very similar uh, to yeah. trajectory here. Um, yeah. uh, one one last thought, pastoral. One last thought, not so much. What um, what keeps you hopeful? Well, in terms of the U.S. There are a number of forces mobilizing to defend the rule of law and democracy, both political, Republican and Democrat. Like I'm in Georgia where Brian Kemp and Brad Raffensperger, the uh, Secretary of State, have refused to be intimidated by the uh, election subversion efforts of Trump. Yeah. Um, and, you know, now some... Trumpist legislators are trying to have a special session call to come after Fannie Willis, the DA of yeah. Fulton County. And yep. Kemp said, no, we're not playing. We're not doing that. 
We have separation of powers. There are things we do. This is not part of the system here. We don't do that. Brian Kemp knows right from wrong, and he knows how democracy works. So that gives me hope. And that kind of person, a lot of them Republican, surfaced all over the country in 2020 and 21. Also, I was made hopeful that some of the most extreme anti-democratic, in my view, candidates all lost in 2022. And I named some of them in the book. So people who are mainly known for questioning the 2020 election and being all in with Trump, they lost state after state. Yeah, so That's encouraging. I do think that there are people paying attention to what happens when you lose a democracy and how awful it is. And so people are fighting hard and scrapping hard for it. And a lot of forces are mobilizing to analyze what's going wrong and how to, how to repair. So, so some of those things give me hope. But the trajectory of conservative American, the most conservative American politically oriented folks is not giving me hope. It's, um, uh, we need a detox, a deep detox. I don't know exactly when that's going to happen, but I'm trying yeah. to contribute to it with this book. Well, I, I would say you you succeed with this book, with your general uh, voice in the world, and I'm appreciative of it. Last, last question. It is a doozy, and that is... What you watching? What you, watching? What you reading? Dr. Gashi, what you've been watching, what you've been reading, what you've been listening to that you'd like to recommend. It can be further reading on these topics. It can be just guilty pleasure somewhere in between. I get the feeling you need a guilty pleasure in your life, the way you carry some of this stuff, but, um, <laughs> but I'll let you answer the question most honestly. <laughs> um, I've been watching my Atlanta Braves march through uh, Major League Baseball this year. Yes. Um, the best team in baseball. Um, just in every way. So I've been what you've been watching, been watching the Atlanta Braves, been watching The Office. We're in season three. Okay. Um, been watching uh some of the cool movies that came out this summer. We actually went back to the movie theater for the first time in a long time. Okay. So we we saw Barbie and Oppenheimer and Mission Impossible. So been seeing the big screen. Good for you. It's funny. I thought about baking into my our conversation today. Are you a, a, a Barbenheimer person? And I didn't even know you'd actually walk into it. So there we are. Yes. Um, been reading, um, been reading through the history of Western political thought to be able to be as fluent on this history as possible. So there's not too many people who can say they've been reading Cicero and Aristotle and Plato and and John then watching Barbie. And Barbie, <laughs> yeah, all of them. Barbie, Barbie uh, really contributed. There was a 17th century Barbie who really had some great stuff to say about politics. Um, now, so I've been reading that, which makes me a terribly boring person. But I always want to be ready when I'm talking about something and know what I'm talking about. So, um, well, yeah, you know, I, I'll, I'll speak for myself. You know, I would not apply boring to the nature of our conversations. I'm always uh, grateful for deeply and ministered to by them, um, and um, you know stay 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 doing what you're doing we'll have you back on uh in no short time and and who knows maybe you'll watch a scary movie later in the year and you'll be like nathan i really want to can we can i can i join the party and actually talk about a scary movie and i'll say yes absolutely come do that um that would be grand fun um 
Foggers, we will now return to your regularly scheduled programming. Remember that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but not the end of the conversation. And in that spirit, we encourage you to fear nothing else and be on your way rejoicing. Thank you, Dr. Gushy, for your time today. You're very welcome, Nathan. Thanks for having me back. Absolutely. We'll do it again soon. 